I'm really interested in how music is one way human beings can communicate with other species. We don't exactly know what's going on. Just like when people are playing music, what's really happening? What are we communicating? What does the music really mean? You can say it makes you happy or sad. You can say it's about attracting a mate. You can say it's about having fun, but we can't really translate what the meaning of music is, even just human music. And yet you listen to what's going on in the world out there. Animals are also making music. And just as a person can sit down and play music with someone from another part of the world, maybe you can't talk to them because you don't speak the same language. You can make music together because the way music communicates is much more fluid, unclear, vague, emotional, direct, without needing us to be sure what's actually happening. You're listening to A Bird and a Human. The human is clarinetist and philosopher David Rothenberg. And who's to say this bird is lacking a philosophical bent? I don't know. But when it comes to musicianship, I'm happy to call this creature a natural. I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. Well, my friend Michael Pestel, artist and former professor at Chatham College, he said, you've got to come play with these birds in the national aviary. I didn't even know America had a national aviary, but it does. And it's in Pittsburgh. And so I was wandering with my clarinet playing along. I felt a little bit uh, ridiculous. And then this one bird got really interested in what I was doing. And later I learned he was a white-crested laughing thrush. This is the moment that got me really interested in playing live with birds, thinking that maybe some interesting thing could happen here. Because this bird reacted in a way very differently than I expected. He kind of engaged with what I was playing and really seemed to perform this kind of duet. And it really wasn't what I thought singing birds tended to do. So it really did surprise me and set me on this quest to put myself, this quest to put myself in unusual situations where I might make music together with other species. The clarinetist can speak for himself to explain what he's up to with his music and why, but what about the bird? Who can say with any certainty that an animal is musical or not musical? But let's not limit this question to birds alone. What about other animals, from insects to mighty whales? Can anybody say why they produce sounds that, at a minimum, sometimes remind us of music, but may actually be music? Given its name, Laughing Thrush, I want to say that this bird was much amused at David Rothenberg's improvisations on the clarinet. But actually, I'm no more justified in saying that those bird sounds were amusement than I am in saying it was music. David is a professor of philosophy and music at the New Jersey Institute of Technology. Sometimes people ask, well, how do you know this is music? Why is it music and not language? At that point, I would say that these performances by birds, they're saying the same things over and over and over again. They're performing these same patterns over and over and over again. If it was more like language, they got the message. We hear what you have to say. Why are you endlessly repeating it? And then you have to look into the world of human communication where music can be endlessly repetitive. We hear the same songs and phrases and beats and rhythms and melodies over and over and over again. And we like them because music communicates in this performative way. We don't even know what it means for humans. Why do we care about music so much when it's saying nothing, nothing specific at least, It touches our emotions. It makes us feel a certain way. It makes us tune in to some kind of beat or sound of what's around us. We don't really know what it's saying. We can't translate it. And this is why these sounds performed by birds, some kinds of whales, bugs, other animals, is really much closer to music than it is to language. It's these performed patterns with a beginning and middle and end with an exact sense of structure and timbre and kind of phrasing that is much closer to what goes on in music than in language. (laughs) 
most human languages recognize that certain sounds made by birds should be called songs and not calls. It's very common in many human languages. So people recognize that there's something musical about what these animals are doing. What is it? As I mentioned earlier, it's a sense of a sound that gets its meaning and purpose by the way it's shaped and formed. It has a beginning, middle, and end, a kind of emotional quality in it, a change in timbre or sound quality, like all these things that matter in music. We, how you turn, in, turn something that from a word, a spoken word, like into a sung word, the way it's said and it's, it's, its tonal pattern and sonic shape matter more than the actual message that's inside it. That's why these sounds are repeated over and over and over again and still mean something. And also there's the fact that once you think of this sound from these other species as music, it's instantly way more accessible than language. If it's language, we say, oh, what is he saying? I wish I could translate that. But if it's music, even if we know nothing about a foreign music from another culture, another part of the world with humans, we can still understand something in it just by feeling it taking it in. You don't need to know how music is put together to get meaning from it. And if you take animal sounds as music, you don't need to know exactly what's being said to find some meaning in it. A couple of weeks ago here on Constant Wonder, we spoke with David Rothenberg and with one of his fellow researchers by the name of Dave Gammon about mockingbirds. They helped us understand the complexity of mockingbird song, and they discussed some of the remarkable techniques of variation that these birds use as they go about their melodic mimicry, a mockingbird's output in sheer volume seems encyclopedic. And all of those variations, just virtuosic, it seems. All of this mimicry, though, is just part of what David Rothenberg finds so magnetic in a world where animals sing or seem to sing. At some point, he decided to try to get inside that world he became an interspecies musician. Well, what is that? He generates his art side by side, maybe even in collaboration with various non-human musicians. Cicadas, whales, nightingales, and then the laughing thrush that we heard from earlier. Well, at the time, I imagined, oh, most bird songs are male birds trying to attract a mate or defend their territory. So he was kind of in my face, kind of competing with me. That's what, what I thought, because I thought I knew something about birds because I had taken biology classes like everyone else. But it turned out that the white-crested laughing thrush is it, uses sound in a whole different way. The males and females of this species sing these complex duets with each other so they can tell where they are in a thicket, a kind of thick foliage in which they live in, in India and Southeast Asia. They can't see each other, but they want to know the other is nearby. And I didn't know that at the time. And I, then I looked up some science about this. There was just a handful of papers pointing out that, oh, the laughing thrushes sing duets in a way a lot of other birds don't. They're really like little musical phrases. They're really complex and varied. And that's kind of unusual. But I, I, I sort of discovered that just by playing along, just by, by being there with a the sound he got interested in. And this laughing thrush was kind of alone in this open netted cage. When I came back 16 years later, he was still there, but he had a female laughing thrush and there were some grown up baby ones. He was part of a whole family and they were all singing together these kind of complicated things. They live uh, you know, quite a few years. So his life had transformed since I had first met him as a young, lonely bird caught inside a netted cage in the National Aviary in Pittsburgh. A lot of people hear about this, they want to know, did the bird imitate you? Did he copy you? That's kind of sort of insulting way to respond to another musician. Why should he want to copy me? Why should I be interested in that? I want to make music together. I want to make some sound together with these animals that could not be made by one species alone. I don't want him to copy me. I don't want to copy him. David has not beaten what you would call a conventional path. His research has taken him into territories that very few people have been willing to chart. And the result has been multiple books and recordings and projects that deal with animals and their music. And somewhere along the way, he also performed and recorded with Peter Gabriel 
and other prominent human musicians. But his animal partners, well, those have ranged from lyrebirds in Australia to nightingales in Berlin. And he has made some music with, or at least I should say he's joined in with humpback whales and cicadas. We're going to get to those stories a little later. But I really want to underscore here the fundamental premise that an animal might ever want to interact with a human to make what we call, what we humans call music. Crazier even yet would be the idea that an animal could have an aesthetic sensibility. That might be all good and fine for David Rothenberg, just one small step. But I rather suspect it's a giant leap for animal kind. Maybe. Lots of people have noticed you make some sounds, they respond to you, they're interested because of their their natural duetting habit and behavior. And every bird species, every songbird is, is an aesthetic world into itself. You know, Darwin wrote that birds have a natural aesthetic sense, and that's why they evolved beautiful feathers and beautiful sounds that they make beautiful songs. And he knew that this wasn't exactly natural selection. It wasn't like survival of the fittest. It's not the fittest bird that spends all this time singing duets. But there was something else he posited, sexual selection, which is like survival of the beautiful, survival of the weird, the cool, the interesting things that the female birds assess and decide they like. That's why peacocks evolved It's kind of useless, crazy feathers they have to drag around, slow them down, because the females who don't have that decided they just liked it. They liked it so much that they affected evolution. Wait just a minute now. I am hearing that peafowl evolved to have splendid plumage, at least in part, just because some females thought that certain males were eye candy, if they had the right feathers, you know. Well, if the game of evolution is supposed to have a basis in survival of the fittest, somebody here is not playing by the rules. Those feathers, extraneous, useless, superficial. Well, it turns out that Darwin himself was befuddled by the showy extravagance of so many male birds across different species, not just peacocks. And from what I hear, this issue remains kind of thorny in the biological sciences even today. At least it's puzzling. And to puzzle over something, well, that's to keep wondering, which for this podcast is bread and butter. One thing I have wondered about in relation to the idea that animals could have some kind of aesthetic sense is whether the clarinet for any reason should be particularly appealing to birds. I couldn't help but ask David Rothenberg if some bird out there wouldn't perhaps be smitten by the sound of a tuba, not a clarinet and might want to sing along with that brassy instrument. Probably, but you know, it's just what I happen to play, and I know that these higher, more wind-like sounds appeal to birds. They probably like flutes and piccolos even more, but it depends on the species. You know, if you wanted to uh, attract, say, a cassowary, a large, flightless Australian dinosaur-like bird, can be very dangerous, but maybe a tuba or something vibrating the earth might interest them because they kind of vibrate the ground around. I wouldn't necessarily recommend playing to cassowaries because they're pretty vicious. They're like, you know, large super ostriches. David's not kidding here. A native to Australia, these cassowaries have beautiful plumage and they do make some pretty awesome sounds, but just don't get too close. A Florida man was killed by his pet cassowary in a brutal attack. They're widely described as the world's deadliest bird. So it's just as well for David to not attempt any kind of duet with a cassowary, even if this bird might possibly have some affinity to those deep tones of a tuba, which David doesn't play in the first place. So what's the point there? Well, in a minute or two, we're going to reflect with him about the qualitative value of song in the life of a bird. We're going to do this with an eye toward the possibility that there's more to this complex behavior called birdsong than just finding food, wooing a mate, or sounding the alarm when something dangerous threatens your existence, your chances of survival. I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. To fancy the idea that birds would ever sing for reasons that parallel our own human enjoyment and participation in music, well, that can 
quickly bump up against the science of their vocalizations. A philosopher like David Rothenberg has not shied away from those kinds of collisions. I actually think he relishes them. When I started working on this and wrote this book called Why Birds Sing, I pointed out that the scientists were not taking their subject of their research seriously enough. They didn't study the musical aspects of this and instead went too quickly to the sense of function. Like, why did this evolve? Why did the laughing thrushes do this? Instead of just what are they actually doing is already so interesting and not understood enough. These aren't intellectual battles for me to fight, but they do fill me with great curiosity. There seems to be a locked-in consensus informed by science that animals are driven to do just what they do. They go on living as long as they possibly can, programmed to survive and to thrive in order to survive and thrive some more. Life begets life. Life wants to live. It's a primal urge that seems to be the starting point for all such Darwinian conversations. But just how far do we dare stray from that tight focus about animal motivations? Well, what is survival, you know? Animals want to stay alive, but the life of an animal is richly complex experience of so many different things. And it is of the very essence of these songbirds, which is a whole group of birds, a family of birds, that they sing. That's what they do. It's of their very essence. They need to sing. Usually they sing short, you know, reasonable songs and go on and hunt for food and build nests and do all the rest. But certain species are outliers. They've evolved the need to sing very complicated songs that go on and on and on for many minutes. Why did this happen? It happened in a way because it could, and presumably because of sexual selection, that again, the females somehow preferred this and it worked to define the, the preferable qualities of these species. But we really don't know too much about that, why in certain species these long, complicated songs emerge. What you know, A laughing thrush has a complex song, but it doesn't use it in the same way a mockingbird does. It is more common to come up with these solo performances, but the more common solo performances are short little phrases, like a chickadee going, do-do, That's all. Chickadee, that's enough. Why the chickadee does that is the same reason the mockingbird sings for 40 minutes, to defend his territory and attract a mate. Why then does the mockingbird need to sing so much more? We don't really know. Am I okay by having a little fantasy that a mockingbird might just feel some kind of intrinsic existential fulfillment of some kind, that they, to be a mockingbird is to do that? Yes, but he feels the same existential fulfillment that a chickadee does. But for him to be fulfilled, it's a lot more work. It's like somebody who's happy to play one power chord on a guitar and go, yeah, <laughs> it works. And someone else says, I really have to learn all of Rachmaninoff's third piano concerto. It's going to take me like 10 years to figure this out. <laughs> so you're saying a mockingbird is a virtuoso. <laughs> he wants to be, yes. And, and you could say, dude, don't bother. Just pick up my guitar and play this one chord. And this, the, the, the piano student is going to say, I'm sorry, that's just not going to do it for me. I need to practice, practice, practice. Well, and you could you could try and evaluate which is the better experience for the uh, human musician, and you can't really compare. They're just different routes you can follow. What is the goal? What is the function? Thinking about that way about human music is not so helpful. Look, I'm just going to, you know, I, I need to do this to to get the babes. You know, I need I need to 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 get girls to like me. You know, neither route is really the best way to get girls to like you. It might help, but it probably won't even though it's led a lot of musicians down a circuitous path of death and destruction and sometimes pleasure. It's not the easiest way, believe me. You better have another reason to become a musician than that. Whether you're a mockingbird or a budding uh, rock star or pianist, that shouldn't be the reason. This actually cuts kind of close to home for me. In my life as a single adult, I devoted a lot of time to music. And when I finally met Sarah... I wouldn't say it was my musicianship that, uh, <laughs> well, let's say it wasn't a demerit exactly, but it, it just wasn't the thing that won her over. Maybe it was my looks, my plumage, if you will. Well, we're going to turn now to another of David Rothenberg's great music projects. This one took him to Berlin, 
And there with a band of musicians who went out into parks at night, they met up with some nightingales. Remember the audio we heard of the laughing thrush? To me, that very much sounded like a bird that wanted to play along with the humans. These European nightingales, I get that feeling here too. This film and recording project is quite stunning. You can find it to rent for just a few bucks on Vimeo. But right now, I want you to enjoy a clip from it and size up what's going on here. There's a woman singing at first with a bird, and then David joins in and other musicians. And some of the most remarkable moments come toward the end of this clip. You're going to hear a sitar, that instrument from India, and then the birds pick up on that instrument sound in particular, and they just seem to want to sing along. great thing about nightingales is they tend to sing short phrases and leave space to hear what happens and then they come in again and you know they're supposed to do that to listen for other nightingales defending their territories and establishing their place maybe competing maybe collaborating but they're actually happy to do it when they hear other sounds they're not only interested in nightingale songs they're interested in sound so it's a a very special bird to play along with because it leaves space for you David has traveled to many places in the world to do these duets with birds. And when you run out of birds, it doesn't mean you're out of music. He moved from birds to whales and cicadas. Told you we'd get to them. Neither of these I would think of as particularly promising candidates for a project like this. And I really should be clear here that David doesn't pretend to be actually duetting with the whales or the insects. They're not wanting to play with him He's just in their presence making music, but I still get the the feeling that the whales are doing more than the bare minimum that Darwin would have expected of them. As for the cicadas, I don't know what's going on in those little heads. Maybe David will hazard a guess. Here he is again. I wanted to play music along with humpback whales. The easiest place to do that is in Hawaii because the waters are very calm. Once we stopped killing whales, they just would sort of hang around there during the winter uh, mating and breeding season. They'd be singing for hours on end for many, many weeks. And you go out there and you just like uh, listen, try and figure out what's happening. And then when you're ready, dare to join in. Well, joining in is going to be hard on the clarinet if you submerge it in salt water. I don't think you did that. Well, you broadcast the sound underwater with an underwater speaker, and you listen with an underwater microphone, and you hear this music being made in the in the subaqueous under undersea world, and you're wearing headphones like I'm doing now, and you kind of join in with it, and it takes you to a whole other place and to an interspecies music that no one animal could make alone. It needs a human, and it needs a humpback whale. Thank you. 
did you achieve the duetting kind of experience that you did with a thrush with the whales? Yeah, I've done that many times, but you can't always tell whether the whales are listening because humpback whales are surprisingly like mockingbirds. They just sing these solo performances. They go on and on. It's unclear who is listening to this. They're not territorial. It's assumed it's to attract the attention of female whales. But since this phenomenon was discovered in the late 1950s, 50, 60 years ago, no human has ever seen a female whale show any interest in this phenomenon. And yet still, biology says it's to attract the attention of female whales. Maybe it's about something else entirely. How do you know when your experiment has gone on long enough? I mean, are you going to be there for days? Are you going to be there for weeks? Or do you say, that's a wrap after you've been there for 10 minutes? I should be there as long as possible, but you know, I've never been there for, for more than a few weeks going out every day. And sometimes you get a sense that there's some overlap and connection, but you're not really sure. We just don't know what the whales are up to. Occasionally, you, whales, however, do change their songs from week to week, month to month, year to year. The population as a whole tends to evolve to a new common tune. But the details of how or why that happens are quite beyond human comprehension. As a musician, you just can go out there and broadcast your sound down there, try and find it places not so complicated, not too many whales singing at once, and see if your sound can interact with what's there. And it's, it's very mysterious. You don't really know what's going on, I would have to say. But sometimes it does seem like one clarinet broadcasting underwater can make a kind of duet experience with a humpback whale. And yet there's a chance that you were in the same predicament as a mockingbird, making your sounds on the clarinet, albeit, not having any way of knowing if anybody cared down there. Yeah, I mean, but I think many musicians playing on stage feel the same way. (laughs) Whether or not there's applause, do they really care? Do they know what they're (laughs) listening to? Do they even get it? Do they know how bad that performance was as they're all giving me a standing ovation? I think just about any musician I know has had that experience. What? Why did they like this when I thought it was so terrible? Or I thought it was so brilliant and nobody is saying anything. They're sitting stone-faced or maybe walking out, coughing and missing the whole thing. What drives a musician, our sense of what's right, what's wrong, what works, can be very far away from what the audience is experiencing. Can I ask you the tuba or trombone question now? I know that the sonorities of a humpback whale are kind of low in the register and uh, clarinet's a little high. Mismatch there? The range of the humpback whale is similar to that of a cello, maybe like a bass clarinet. It's not so different from a clarinet or the human voice, which is one reason we might be able to directly access them. Playing a, you know, a tuba might be good for fin whales or blue whales, but also you know, a lot of these sounds do overlap in the same range, so they all could work. And you just don't know. You're not sure what animal. There's overtones. Any note has different overtones. Like when I play a clarinet note, a dog might be hearing much higher frequencies than I can hear that while I'm producing them, you know? So sometimes the way our sounds are heard by another species is a little bit outside of our control. Kind of like the human audience listening to human music is kind of outside of our control too. I want to know if it was worth it to you because there's a scenario where maybe there are suddenly three whales emerging, um, a mother, uh, a baby that's only a few weeks old, a large male escort. There's a lot of family interaction going there and the sounds coming in their direction. If they're utterly superfluous, you're okay by that. You really are. Well, you know, humpback whale males don't sing when they're escorting. You know, that's a different part of their life cycle. So it's a, a male is singing when he's alone, kind of suspended 20, 30 feet below the surface. They're kind of like in a trance. They're singing. That's when singing usually happens. And so it's a different part of their life. So that's those are the kind of whales you want to find. You see the males and the females escorting them, moving around. That's not a good time to want to interact with a singing whale because he probably won't be singing. If you're hearing a singing whale at that moment, it's another whale. you got to find that other whale. And maybe I've painted the picture unfairly. There may have been moments where you felt fully convinced that you had evidence even that the whales were noticing whatever it was that you were offering in the way of a stimulus. 
oh, well, you know, I'm not doing science on this in the whale case. Again, I'd have to do it like hundreds or thousands of times. And, and But I know that I've surprised some whale researchers when I played the results of my duet recordings. I said, look, the whale did this. He goes, what? He did that? That's unusual. I've never heard anything like that. And they, they kind of got interested and thought, hmm, maybe we've been playing too many of their own songs back to them. And maybe it'd be more interesting to play them different sounds. He kind of opened up to the possibility that we should interact more and open up what what could be played, what could be tried. How do you feel about uh, these kinds of bridges that are interspecies between our species and whether it's a, a bird or a whale or any other animal? Is there some type of connection that you're wanting to achieve just sort of philosophically here? Yes, as, as I said earlier, I'd like to make a music that no one species could make alone like make some music together with another musician. Like as a solo musician, you can often create greater things by playing together with other people and other sounds, other instruments. It's the same with the human species, can increase and widen and expand our sense of what music can be by connecting it to the sound world of other species. Just think about all the species in their respective environments, filled with vibrations. What's going on there? The laughing thrush seemed to interact happily with the sounds of the clarinet. Humpback whales, well, I don't know what they were doing exactly. They were weaving their sounds in and out and around whatever David was playing. But it might be a really big stretch to think of a cicada noticing anything more than potential danger when a clarinet comes walking up, you know? And given the fact that cicadas make one of the most annoying sounds in all the world, uh, why would we even want to construct a bridge to them in the first place? It's the whole root of human interest in rhythm. It comes from the insect world. Sounds like that millions of years before there were even birds, before there were humans. That's the world of thrum and rhythm and noise that human music evolved in. It's commonplace to think that rhythm in human music comes from walking, comes from dancing, but I submit it probably comes from insects because insects are so rhythmic, their world is so full of rhythm and pattern and, and overlap that that's how, where human civilization began in a swirling world of bug sounds. Now cicadas, and particularly periodic cicadas, are very interesting. They're known, their scientific genus is magis cicada, Magis cicada septendecim, the 17-year cicada. This is like the longest beat in the animal world. Silence, silence, the musicians are counting. Silence, they're silently waiting. They're underground counting for 17 years. Then they all come up, millions of them. And then silence, exactly 17 years, counting the measures, counting the rests. Then they come back up. We have no idea how they manage to do this, but they do. longest beat in the animal world silence for 17 years then the sound and you speed it up super fast you'll hear that's like compressing 17 years into a few seconds it's rhythmic it's exact and that's just an awesome thing how do these bugs manage to do that now that's the macro scale if you slow it down so that we're there with the cicadas i'm there i take out my instrument I'm in the middle of millions of singing cicadas making this wash of noise. To join into that is very humbling. You're just one sound amidst millions. And that really is a humbling example of what it means to be a human being, a human civilization trying to fit into the natural world. How do we fit into this? We just do less, we tread lightly, we listen, we make some sound, we figure out how to join in to the world. That's the only way human beings are going to survive on this planet if we can figure out how to join in with the world. 
that might be a bad answer to your question, but it's definitely a philosophical one. But specifically, cicadas are super musical. They just, they just, their essence is music. They make this very structured sound. I'm going to send you a picture of one cicada sound. It's going to be the most beautiful image of sound you've ever seen, the most rich shape of a phrase. Beethoven would have gotten it immediately. If he saw this picture of the sound, he would have said, ah, I get it. Well, David, you have also compressed the sound of whales, where their utterances or songs or calls coming every two minutes, once the audio is compressed, the regularity, the strict regularity is still there. Yeah. Two minutes later, you're going to hear whoop. Two more minutes. We don't hear that as a rhythm, but the fin whales might. We speed it up, it's going to be whoop, 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 whoop. It's crazy. Like the, the whale might be able to perceive time that much more slowly. So, the cicada on your face in a video that I've watched. <laughs> There's a cicada on my face. It, <laughs> you, yeah, you, okay, you, I, I know there is. It, yeah, that exists. And you've got a clarinet, yeah. and um, that's a little creepy. Cicadas are not creepy. You know, they're they're so friendly, and they're like the best animal to film if you want to make a nature film. There's millions of them around. They're just walking everywhere. You can just pick them up. They're very docile. They're not afraid of anything. You know, they don't do any damage. They might tickle you a little bit. Some people think it's creepy. Other people eat them. But you know, it's they're, they're definitely very interesting and, and very unlike other animals in their docility and their accessibility. But people get weird around cicadas, you know. I've seen a TV, a TV, a famous uh, TV newscaster, the cicada, a light on his jacket while he was on the screen. He just wants to swat it and kill it, but he can't because he's on the cameras, you know. It's live TV. He was in this, this real bind. He had to behave himself or his career would be over. He just had to get used to it. And then, <laughs> and then the cicada went, the pharaoh sound, a musical utterance, a beautiful musical phrase. And you, by contrast, unlike the, the, the TV man there, uh, you're trying with your clarinet to align your sonic production as closely as you can with what the cicadas are doing? No, I'm never imitating these animals. I want to learn from this musical world, kind of join in. I know the cicada doesn't need clarinet sounds. He's not interested in my sounds. I want to join into this musical possibility. It's, I don't expect an individual interaction because that's not what they're doing. They're, they're joining into the fray. The individual is part of this massive whole. I, I seek that humility to be as, as small and as knowing as the cicada, to know exactly what kind of sound to make, how to fit in. I know I'm not going to get there because human beings think too much. Our brains are too big and we're too much lost in our own self-significance and contemplation that we can't humble ourselves enough. No matter how much religious training we have seeking humility, we're still too arrogant to do what the cicada does and really make a simple sound to join into the whole, to join into the world around us, to fulfill our destiny. Is there a way to talk about whales and cicadas, mockingbirds, the white-crested laughing thrush? Uh, is there a way to talk about their production of music as artistry? Is that going to be just too much of semantic dithering? Well, what, what, good question. I mean, what is artistry? What does that mean? I think it's easier to talk about what is the aesthetic? What does is, what is an aesthetic sense mean? And that means a sense of appreciation of beauty, of just kind of requiring a certain kind of sound and elevating it above all others. And all these animals have evolved through sexual selection or something else, the need to hear a certain kind of sound. Even the simple cicada, the simple 17-year cicada, has a mating ritual far more complex acoustically than that of any other insect. And that the male makes this pharaoh sound, pharaoh, pharaoh, and waits for the female to do a duet, but not to make a similar sound because she can't. She has to flick her wings like a tiny click at exactly the right timing 
musically precise after the pharaoh ends. Only if it's the right timing does the male then make a second pharaoh, pharaoh, and has to do, the female does it a second time. It's an exact exact score he and she have to follow. Only after the third time does he decide it's okay to mate with his female and then switches to another sound. Pharaoh, 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 pharaoh. You know, so it's a whole pattern, an exact musical score these insects have evolved the need to follow. They don't have to think about this. They've evolved this musical ritual they have to do. This is artistry, I'll have to say. It's not so much individual practice. It's the evolution of a very specific phenomenon. Give me an animal or two that's next on your list of fellow musicians. Uh, The next project is even more mysterious and diffuse I'm working on now. It's called The Secret Sounds of Ponds. If you drop an underwater microphone into a pond and listen, you hear this incredible sound world, mysterious rhythms and noises, and many of them still not known to science, even though the ponds are in our backyards. It's a mixture of plants engaged in the business of photosynthesis, rhythmic repeating sounds, insects making calls like like cicadas and crickets, but we can't always identify which insects are doing what because we can't see them when we hear them. The sound underwater travels so clearly and so fast and so directionally unclear, we don't know where the sound is coming from. So I just completed a manuscript on this topic and hoping someone will publish it. It's always hard to get these books of mine published, but they always end up coming out because someone gets it and says, wow, that's really interesting. If there's music to be heard down in a pond, that's something I might really like to hear. And if there is, and if it's worth hearing and considering, well, you can be assured, clarinetist and philosopher David Rothenberg is already on it. And lest you should think he's the only person on this planet who's actively inquiring into the matter of animals and music, I'm about to introduce you to a musically howling whippet along with its composer-owner. It's just a few minutes away here on Constant Wonder. And by the way, I should let you know that we have visited with David Rothenberg on a previous episode about the marvel of mockingbirds and their songs. If you found his work as interesting and provocative as I have, here's your invitation to give that episode a listen to. Rothenberg is a professor at the New Jersey Institute of Technology. The very first thing you heard in this episode of Constant Wonder was the sound recording of David Rothenberg playing his clarinet with a white-crested laughing thrush. Now, whether the bird sang along with him or he played along with the bird... Either way, it's astonishing audio. Okay, I'm going to jog your memory. Compare that with this. The reason I want you to hear a dog singing with oboes is to assure you that David Rothenberg's passion for music-making with animals, well, it's just not a desert island thing. He's not alone. In fact, for a few decades now, there has been a field called zoomusicology. It considers the nature of music when music is in nature, or when animals are heard making sounds that we might be tempted to categorize as music. So here, as a couple of oboists play together, a whippet chimes in. A whippet is a dog breed closely related to greyhound but smaller, and sometimes they like to howl. This one is named Idris Donut. Idris has a human whose name is Emily Doolittle. No relation to the fictitious veterinarian Dr. Doolittle. This Dr. Doolittle does share an interest, though, in animals. Emily Doolittle is a real live composer of music and a zoomusicologist, and there's no aspect of non-human musical production that doesn't seem to interest her. One of my favorite hobbies, and especially I really appreciated this during lockdown when I couldn't play music with other people, is playing oboe with the whippet and letting him howl along. He listens and comes in and this great sense of sort of musical give and take. I'm playing um, oboe with a friend, Kristen Cook, and we're just playing a duet and then the dog coming in and out and really placing his pitch very nicely in relationship to our pitches. I'm really impressed at his sense of timing and flow.
I write a lot of music, some of which is based on animal songs. And I also study the relationship between animal songs and human music in a variety of different ways. I, I wrote my doctoral dissertation about zoomusicology starting, I think, in 2001. So it was fairly early on in the existence of zoomusicology as a field. And I found myself sort of drawing in literature from, you know, philosophy, biology, ecology, literature, all kinds of different fields. And I think in a sense, zoomusicology is both a recognition that actually people have been thinking about animal songs and music for a very long time, and then an attempt to bring some of these sources and the people thinking about these things together. My very first uh, piece based on birdsong was uh, based on European blackbird song called Night Blackbird Song, written back in 1998. And I remember at the time I thought that that would be my birdsong piece and then I would uh, move on to, you know, exploring other things. But of course, as I was learning more about birdsongs, I realized that there's no such thing as birdsong en masse. There's... uh, even if you're just looking at songbirds, there's like 5,000 different species of songbirds, each of which learn their own songs, have very sort of individual patterns of, you know, how they shape their songs and the kinds of motifs they might use, the kinds of repetitions they use and so on. So I feel like each time I write a bird song based piece, it just, you know, makes me curious about so many more birds. So since then, I've written pieces based on hermit thrush song, musician wren song, bobolink song, grouse calls. Um, you know, I tend to be quite interested in songbirds, so I'm often hearing a songbird song and then wanting to learn more about how they learn it and how it's structured and sort of individual variation within the species. But I'm also interested in the songs of non-songbirds that maybe don't learn their songs, but they just, you know, they all, all the members of the species will make the same kinds of vocalizations. But nonetheless, when you hear many of them calling together, it just makes this amazing, ever varying sound. So for example, I've written a number of pieces based on different species of geese. Um, I like geese because if you hear one, it sounds quite silly, but if you hear a whole flock of geese, you know, thousands of geese flying overhead, it's an amazingly uh, beautiful and evocative sound. Um, And recently I've written a piece based on the sounds in a gannet colony. So again, you know, these aren't birds that learn songs. They have um, instinctive vocalizations, but the uh, sound of them en masse is just so incredibly rich and varied. One of the reasons that I really like studying zoomusicology and zoomusicology related topics, that it can be everything. You know, it can be, I mean, recently I've been enjoying playing duets on the oboe with my dog, who's an excellent howler. Um, He really likes, you know, when I play long tones, he really likes sort of joining in. So there's just, you know, sort of the very fun give and take aspect of it. But I've also done collaborations with biologists looking at uh, animal songs from a more scientific perspective. I've looked at the history of how we um, write about animal songs or how we transcribe animal songs. I've looked at poetry about animal songs. Um, And I just love the fact that I can come sort of at the same topic from so many different angles. My real hope when I write pieces is that people will become more curious about listening to the songs of the species I explore. So if I write a piece with a blackbird in it, then I hope that maybe when they go out, they'll recognize a blackbird singing next to their house that they didn't hear before. They'll be curious about the ways that song is and is not similar to what they just heard in my piece. I think often, you know, we talk about birds and we sort of lump them all together as if they're all the same, or people talk about blackbirds, you know, maybe they're thinking about different species, but then they lump all the members of the species together. But actually each individual of each species is singing its own version of the song. It lives in its own, you know, it has its own tree that it, or, you know, environment that it lives in. It has its own experiences. They're individuals just as we are. And I guess my hope is that if somebody hears my music or other music, which somehow engages with animal songs, they'll become more curious about the noise-making species around them, and we'll start to recognize each animal as an individual with its own interests and needs and preferences, and hopefully start to just naturally want to guard more habitat for, for all the different animals around us. Finally, when it comes to music-making among non-human animals, what does Emily Doolittle imagine their inner experience to be? 
So it's easy to misunderstand, but I think then people wanting to think scientifically have gone much too far in the other direction. So they'll say, or, you know, it, it is still common to say, well, we don't know if this bird is singing because it finds it beautiful. So therefore it's, it doesn't find it beautiful. But of course we actually don't know what the bird is thinking. Um, so we can make guesses about what it's doing, but just because we can't know that it, you know, has a sense of beauty, that doesn't mean it doesn't have a sense of beauty. And I think, you know, given that we're animals as well, it would be a little bit strange to think that we're the only ones who have a sense of aesthetics or a sense of liking sounds or a sense of making choice. On the other hand, I do think we probably overestimate our own sort of personal choice about what we're doing. I mean, I think it's very easy to, you know, we sing a song and we think, okay, I'm choosing this song because I find it very beautiful, but probably many other things are going on as well. Like, you know, for one thing, I think people use music very much to um, say which social groups they're part of. So I may choose some song to sing and I'll think, oh, I just love this tune. But I bet, you know, somewhere in the back of my mind is also placing myself with you know, within and without groups. And I think it's a mistake to think that only one thing is going on when an animal or a person sings as well. Probably there's all kinds of things like aesthetic choice, various biological functions. Um, it doesn't have to be one or the other. I, I'm sure that the blackbird likes and enjoys singing its song, whatever that means to the blackbird, which may, you know, I'm never going to be a blackbird, so I'm not going to know exactly how it feels, but I would assume it's quite analogous to how we feel. Our thanks to composer and zoomusicologist Emily Doolittle, the place to go to learn more about her work is emilydoolittle.com. We're indebted also to David Rothenberg for sharing his passion and curiosity and wonder. He's on the web at davidrothenberg.net. And thanks to you for joining with us. Producers for this episode were Eric Schultzka with Paige Crumperman-Darrington. I'm Marcus Smith. Constant Wonder is a production of BYU Radio. BYU Radio.